Turn to First Peter, First Peter, chapter five. We are end. We are at the end of the epistle of First Peter, First Peter, chapter five. Now, for connection's sake, we shall read verse, verses ten to fourteen. Right, ten to fourteen. Reading, but the God of all grace, who hath called us unto His eternal glory. By Christ Jesus, after that ye have suffered a while, make you perfect, establish, strengthen, settle you. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. By Silvanus, a faithful brother unto you, as I suppose, I have written briefly, exhorting and testifying that this is the true grace of God, wherein ye stand. The church that is at Babylon, elected together with you, saluteth you, and so does Marcus, my son. Greet ye one another with a kiss of charity. Peace be with you all that are in Christ Jesus. Amen. May God bless the reading of his word. Let us all turn to God in prayer. Eternal God, our gracious, loving Heavenly Father, we come before thy throne to give you thanks for journey mercies to thy house and every opportunities to study your word. We pray once again for the fresh cleansing and washing in the blood of our Savior. That this night, Lord, would receive your blessing as we study your word, that there'll be no hindrances in our hearts to receive and to obey your word. We pray, O oh Father, that you would remove the tiredness of the body for the labor of the day and the week. We pray that you grant to us concentration. And Lord, we pray that your holy word will work mightily in every heart tonight. Lord, speak as we listen. We pray for the facilitators. Use them, O Lord, as thy mouthpiece. May you feed your flock tonight in thy house. We ask and pray for thy kingdom's sake, for thy glory's sake. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, tonight, we want to focus specifically on verse 12, right? Verse 12. Now, but just a quick reminder, the last time we were gathered, we studied verse 11. Verse 11, to him, right? To him, Christ Jesus, be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Now, let us remember that the Christian walk, as Peter reminds them, at the end of this epistle, ultimately, everything in life is all about giving glory to Christ, making sure that all dominion truly is accorded to him, to him who deserves all this. To, to him be glory means to make sure, to make sure that men sees God for who he is. All right? Magnify God in the sight of men. That is what it means. The Christian must remember right? that God actually in your life is everything. When God is everything in your life, you magnify him. Now, not that we can add to the glory of God. Please remember that. We cannot add a single thing to the glory of God. But the Christian is given the privilege to show men who this God is, right? Then dominion must remind us that Christ rules over all. Now, the Christian at this time under persecution would feel, no, it's Nero that is in control of our lives. Nero, not man, not, not God. It's very easy to feel that way. So Peter reminds them, please remember, God is in control. Christ is in control. All this persecution that you are going through, submit to it. It is what God intended. 
In fact, in verse 10, these persecutions are intended that after you suffered a while, make you perfect, establish, strengthen, and settle you. This is the control of God in our lives. So Christian, we must view all things in life for His glory and in submission to everything that He ordains for our life. Please remember that. That was his exhortation towards this part of the epistle to the Christians. And then he ends off in verse 11, Amen, Amen, all right, Amen. Amen means let it be so, and so shall it be in our lives. So shall it be in our lives that all glory would be to God. I live for his glory, and I will submit to his dominion. He is my Lord and my Master. I don't live for this world anymore, all right? So here the apostle breaks out in this, this um, doxology to the Christian. In the midst of all your suffering, why does he say all this? In the midst of all your suffering, we must turn our eyes to the glory of God and to the submission of his dominion. Because it's very easy for the Christian in times of trials, whether it's well, difficulties in life, whether it's some health problems, whether it's financial problems, whether it's work problems, family problems, in the midst of all the problems, and then you have, well, unbelievers persecuting you, mocking you at work, at home, your relatives giving you a difficult time because you are a Christian. Now, in the midst of all this, it's very easy for the Christian to moan and groan. Very easy for the Christian to see all things in a very dark and hopeless light. So here the Apostle Peter breaks out, all right, suddenly when you talk about suffering, then he breaks out in this doxology to turn the Christian eyes upon the glory of God, the nobinion of Christ. All right, so Christian, we must, in, our midst, in the midst of all the trials and difficulties and pressures of life, always revert back to this sight, the glory of God, the dominion of God in, our, in this world, in our lives. That is what will strengthen us, encourage us, all right? So please remember that. If you're going through some difficult times, don't just wallow and just keep concentrating and focusing and let those difficulties just weigh you down. Because no matter what troubles we are facing, I don't think it can be compared to these Christians, all right? They live under the constant threat of death, limbs being cut off, Families being um, killed in front of them. Properties being taken away. Freedom being taken away. Treated unfairly can be thrown into prison anytime just because they were Christians following the word of God. I don't think we, our trials and difficulties and pressures in life can be compared to them. But yet, God used Peter to draw them to the sight of the glory of God, the dominion of God. That brings everything in your life to perspective, okay? So I hope that we remember that lesson. Now, then we come to verse 12, right? Verse 12. By Salvanus, a faithful brother unto you, as I suppose, I've written briefly, exhorting and testifying that this is the true grace of God wherein ye stand. Now, let me just quickly explain this verse and then we unpack the verse and we learn, try to learn as much from this verse as possible. Do not take endings of epistles as, well, just cursory greetings and then they are just, well, 
um, like, you know, you finish off an email, you, you, you finish off an email or WhatsApp, you don't even know what you type because it's just all the standard endings you tell people. Well, God bless, uh, um, um, all the best to you, uh, pray for you. We don't even think. And when we, we just send, this is God's word, all right? Every beginning, every greeting, every ending, every closing is God's word. It means every single word is chosen by God. It is meant to bring us something, all right? So now let us unpack this verse and learn as much as possible from it. Now, but first and foremost, what is it saying? Now, by Salvinus, a faithful servant, it said, I have written briefly. Now, he's saying this. Well, you know, this epistle, we've been studying, First Peter, this epistle, this letter that Peter has written, what does he mean by Salvinus? Now, it could be, and we definitely know that the apostles use amanuensis. All right, what is amanuensis? Amanuensis, A-M-A-N, amen, nuensis, E-U-N-S-I-S. A-M-A-N-E-U-N-S-I-S. All right, amanuensis, amanuensis. Now, what are these? These are people that, well, they are the one that actually physically write the letter as the apostles dictate them, all right? So it's kind of like a secretary writing word for word that the apostles speak, amanuensis. So it must be First Peter, uh, or epistle written by Peter. Well, it is Salvanus that has been scribing it for him. And, well, by Salvanus could can also mean that Salvanus was the one that personally was the one who delivered the letter from Peter to these churches Personally, physically, all right, carried it as well, ascribing it. So, well, it is commonly known that the apostles they use amanuensis. Now, but we all know at the end of the day, we must be clear every single word in this completed volume of the Bible is the breath of God, all right, it's the very word, the very voice of the living God that sitteth upon the throne of heaven. Every single alphabet, every single letter, every single word, every single paragraph, they're all God's word, all right? So, even though it's Peter that wrote it and Sylvanus that scribed it, we must be clear. In fact, that is exactly what Peter wanted them to know. Look at verse 12. Look at verse 12. By Sylvanus, well, the scribe, the writer, and it says, I have written briefly, exhorting and testifying what? that this is the true grace of God wherein you stand. So this letter that you receive is really God's word, all right? So now this is what this, this verse means. Now what can we learn from it? What must we learn from it? Well, let's go as deeply as we can and don't lose anything before we finish this epistle. Now first and foremost, we say, the word of God tells by Servanus, a faithful brother unto you. I wonder how many of us, if God were to look down from heaven now, can actually get someone to say of us, we are a faithful Christian. We are a faithful Christian to others, to God. How many of us can receive this um, credit from God's word. Can you imagine Sylvanus' name is for eternity in the living word of God? When we meet Sylvanus in heaven, we 
We truly want to talk to Him, right? Well, of course, it is the grace of God, verse 10, but the God of all grace is the, God, the grace of God. But God can give us the grace. Please remember this. God can give us the grace. And God says, I'm the God of all grace. I will enable you. I will help you. When you obey me, I will strengthen you to finish the task, to, to live as strangers and pilgrims as you ought to. I will. I'm the God of all grace. But after salvation, it is no longer irresistible grace all the time. It will be, well, we can resist. Resist the work of the Holy Spirit. But when we don't, instead when we submit to the work of God in our lives, we will be called faithful. Faithful. Will we be called faithful? Now, this is a letter at the end of it. God moved Peter to bring up Sylvanus' name. So we should not ignore it. Sylvanus, a faithful brethren. Now, Sylvanus um, has been mentioned many times, all right? Um, in the, especially in the book of Acts, Acts 15. Acts 15. There he is referred to as Silas, all right, Silas. Then you will see Paul, who refers to him as Silas, also refers to him as Silvanus, Silvanus in Corinthians, all right? So it's kind of like a nickname that he has. Maybe Silas is the nickname, um, or Silvanus is the nickname, one of it, all right? So Paul also mentioned about him. Both Peter and Paul mentions encouragements from this brother, and this brother has been so useful to them in the ministry, in the kingdom's work. And both of them praise Silas. Now, Christian, I really encourage us that, like I exhorted at the ACM, the purpose of the church is for the perfecting of the saints. The church wants to perfect you. The church duty is to perfect you. means to make you as mature as you can be, as faithful as you can be. You must be interested to be faithful. Fathers, mothers, singles, young men, young ones, are you stirred in your heart? Lord, I want to be faithful. And when I meet you, I want to hear you say, well done, thou good and faithful servant. Not because I want praise. Maybe I ask you, um, Ellen, why do you want to hear God say, well done, thou good and faithful servant? So that everyone around said, whoa, I didn't know Ellen was faithful. Why? Very good. Know in our hearts that we have not failed God. When God calls us good and faithful, it means one thing. We did not disappoint Him in our lives. Did we waste our life on earth? Did we throw it all away? God saved us and then for years and years and years, our life counts for hardly anything. God stirred Peter to bring up Silvanus' name to make us question ourselves. Are we faithful? Will we be faithful to the end? When we meet Christ, we will be called faithful. And when we are not, well, we must just keep looking forward to that day and say, it will be a great disappointment to God. Now, parents, you understand that, right? You do all your best. 
to help your child to bring them up, hoping that they will be godly seed, right? Good people. And then they waste their lives. How do you feel in your heart? Very disappointed, very sad, very brokenhearted. We do not want to meet God being such a child of God, right? Now, first let us ask ourselves, what is faithful then? What is faithful? Well, a few ideas come to mind. You want to try? So, you say, I want to be a faithful Christian. Lord, whatever age that I am, from a very young person to an elderly person, Lord, I want to be a faithful brother, faithful Christian. Now, what comes to your mind being faithful? Please remember, this is not just men, right? Faithful Christian. What will come to mind? All right, know God's word and then put priority to obeying God's word. I know God's word. Am I faithful? Means, will I obey it faithfully? Will I follow it faithfully? Now, it's good that you start there because very often when we think of faithful, especially a faithful worker, the minute we think of that, we think of things like, well, trustworthy, dependable, hardworking, correct? It is all those things as well. But the Christian must remember that the faithfulness when it refers to the Christian must not be simply just, am I trustworthy? Am I, um, am I dependable? Faithful means those things, all right? It means those things. But first and foremost, a faithful Christian must be faithful to God. The reason why you are faithful as a brother to man is because you are faithful to God. That is the key idea of faithful servant. Otherwise, you'll do it for men. You're not faithful to God, you're faithful to men. So this faithfulness, well, first and foremost, well, refers to the spiritual walk, the spiritual life of a Christian, first and foremost. The Apostle Paul and the um, Apostle Peter, now, they are apostles. They won't just use people. They won't just trust people that are, well, just physically um, dependable when it comes to doing things. Because they know, they taught from the Word of God who is useful to God. We are reminded in Psalm, in the charge, at the ordination of Elder Leung, who can ascend to my holy temple? Who can stand before me to serve? The ones with clean hands and pure hearts. So faithfulness begins, being a faithful Christian begins there. Because there can be Christians who are very hardworking, very dependable in the church, but they won't earn this word from God, faithful. Because their hands are not clean, their hearts are not pure. God won't use them, all right? Whatever they do is for ulterior motives. Praise of men or just... Well, like to do things, like to be busy, that's all. There are Christians who are like that. So it begins here, all right? A life, a, a spiritual walk that is right before God. Now, not only that, it, it refers to character, all right? A man of character, people of character. Well, some of these characteristics are, we've mentioned, diligence, 
dependability. This is something that is very rare today, dependability. People are lazy, cut corners, more interested in getting off, finish off work, getting off from school as soon as possible, getting off from duty as soon as possible, to play, right, to relax. People of dependability, you will see them working faithfully, day and night. As long as it's something for the person that is put in his hand, he will ensure that it is done. Now, these are characteristics and traits that are very lost in the age today. Even when you, you see at your workplace, I remember when I used to work and employ people, the older generation, you can say that they are faithful. They are very serious. When something is given, they, it's as if their name depends on it. Of course, for us, it's the glory of God, right? The younger generation, it's very difficult to get them to be dependable. But the Christian must be one that's dependable, all right, in the work of God, in the life of God, with God. Now, what else? Well, it is someone who can be, um, who is trustworthy in discharging duties. Trustworthy in discharging duties. Someone who is um, faithful in executing commands when given something. Faithfully executing it. All right? And now, all this description, when you read the book of Acts, and when Paul mentions Silas or Silvanus, this was very much his life. Now, one of the things that really burdened my heart in, the, in this whole week, after uh, my Sunday's election, and uh, all the deacons were elected in to office, the elder into the elder office. Then I have to really confirm the transitioning of the portfolios, right? Because one deacon stepped down, stepped out of office. Then I have to re remove, re redo the whole um, plan. I have to move treasury, which is a huge and complex area, and we are in the midst of migrating system, all right? Migrating accounting system to Deacon Adrian. Now, I was hoping that with new deacons coming in this year, we will have more. We can do more. But it was not the case because the incoming deacons, they are already fully loaded. The reality is that. Right? But now they have to take on more. And last night, I remembered, I forgot one portfolio. And I had to just drop it into another person, which I have not spoken to him before that. I was wondering when the person read that, he did he faint, right? I had to text him and explain to him why he has to take it for now. Now, why do I bring all these things up? It is very difficult to find faithful men. Now, I'm not saying those that are not in office are not faithful. They are very, there are many very faithful men in this church. I am so thankful to God. You know, even sometimes when I go through the list with our ex-BOE member, Reverend Paul, he looks at it and he says, he shakes his head and says, wow. Many are very faithful, all right? Well, some do not want them to load them anymore with administrative work. You come in and be a deacon, they all know. I'm already very loaded. I'd rather just execute 
I'd rather not have the whole bunch of administration things for the church that I must take over, I must handle when I come in. They'd rather not have that. Now, I'm addressing young men or even elderly men. The church needs people to work. I'm addressing single women. I'm addressing women who are able to serve. Would you be faithful, first and foremost, in your Christian walk? Very often, we can't use people, not for a lack of skills in the person, not for a lack of abilities, but it is a problem with character. And I want to emphasize, I'm not saying that people who are not serving, people who are not in, in the session are all like that. I'm not saying that for a single minute, all right? There are reasons why we do or we do not, all right? Some may be true, some may not. But my point is this. It is very sad to see that it's always falling on the same few men, same few ladies in the church. Whenever we want to move out, we can't find trustworthy, trustworthy both in terms of character, spirituality, as well as execution. Very few. Very difficult. Would you not be that person? Some is just, well, they are able, but they're more interested in the world, in the pursuits of the world. I'm not saying that you don't work. I'm not saying that you, you don't study. But that seems to be the most important thing. When God gives you many abilities, will BPCWA have more? Well, I hope we will have more faithful men and women it is not that God is not willing. Look at verse 10. But the God of all grace. But few are faithful to respond to that grace. That's the problem. Now, without more such people, it's difficult to start more things, more areas of service which I've been thinking about, but I just can't start them. Back to the drawing board. Now, especially men. I'm not saying women are useless. In fact, I would say very often women are very dependable. <laughs> Right? But there are areas that we need men to step up because you, we need them to lead, to drive, to give instructions to a group of people. Right? We can't have women leading that and um, giving out orders and all that. Men, please grow up. Young men, please grow up. Men today, even fathers, can be just childish. Right? Not useful to God. Why? Why do you want to be like that? Right? Be serious. Be a Salvanus. All right? So, that's the first thing I hope that we remember. In the midst of all the persecution, in the midst of all the trials, in the midst of all these things, there were men, there were people, there were Christians like Sylvanus that would carry the message to the front line Right, to bring to these Christians who are persecuted, who are, who, are, who are under great pressure by the Romans, but yet Sylvanus will go there. Now, but another thing I want to learn, I, want, I hope that we learn about faithful, a faithful um, brother to us is this. Now, through the epistle, 
Peter has talked about very difficult things, all right? Both um, rebuking, both reminding, both um, encouraging and stirring the Christians. It is not a, 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 an epistle that by now you should know. It's all about praising them and nice things. It's telling them how to live the Christian life. It's telling them to live the Christian life in a way that will really get them in trouble. I want to emphasize that again. The things that Peter has written for the Christian to continue to be, be holy in a time where the world is at, 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 at that place where they are very carnal, to tell them to be different from these people is just asking to stand up like a sore thumb and asking to be persecuted. And then we have, well, in the most recent area, we say, don't think it is strange for you to suffer persecution. All right? To write this kind of things to someone who has just lost, who has all his property taken away, to write this to someone who, who has um, maybe siblings or parents, loved ones, killed by the Romans because of the faith, to tell them, well, don't think it's strange. Now, it's a very difficult message. I imagine if I was Sylvanus, and I'm writing what Peter is saying as God moved him to speak. And then I'm fully aware of what these people are going through. And then I'm writing these things. And then after that, I'm going to carry it to them. Now, it takes a faithful brother to do that. Proverbs 27, 6 reminds us, Faithful are the wounds of a friend. But the kisses of an enemy are deceitful. Faithful are the wounds of a friend, but the kisses of an enemy are deceitful. Here, in chapter 5, we learned about our enemy, right? The devil, your adversary, in other words, enemy, the devil, walking about to devour you. But here is one who is a faithful Christian. Well, Satan deceives you to live for the world, live for self, live for the moment. Don't have to be so serious about your Christian walk. Here is a faithful friend who would describe faithfully. Peter is not watching, all right? Let me change some of this. It's too difficult a message to bring to these people. Let me just leave out this passage, leave out that statement thinking not strange, maybe I should soften it. Well, he was a faithful scribe, right? Well, it also means this. We must be ready at times to speak with someone, even if it means it's a very difficult message. That's a faithful friend. Do it out in love, do it in care, with carefulness, but you will not refrain from it. Sylvanus did not say, well, Peter, you know, this is just too difficult. Maybe you ask someone else to write it and bring it, all right? It's just to these Christians who are dying, who, who are in great severe persecution beyond imagination, you want to me to deliver this message, and then at the end you want to say Sylvanus <laughs> wrote, wrote it as well. Can I not be involved in this? You know, that is the tendency for us. Now, I'm not asking you to go around looking for people's life and, hey, let me see what can I correct in you. I'm not saying that for a moment. But when there is a need, we must not shrink. If we lo truly love the brethren, we will deliver the difficult message in love. All right? Now, it also means this. 
to the hearers. When Peter says, well, um, in verse 4, by Sylvanus, a faithful brother unto you, he is also reminding them. When you read this epistle, which Sylvanus wrote, which, that I dictated and Sylvanus wrote, don't kill the messenger, right? Don't kill the messenger. He is a messenger. And he's a faithful messenger to you. When you read all these things and say, come on, you know, what you think our life is so it's easy for you to say. Don't start throwing rocks at Sylvanus. He's a faithful brother to you. He will deliver this message even though it's very difficult for you to receive. But he is faithful because it is for your good. It is to, in verse 10, as we are reminded, to make you perfect, to establish you, to strengthen you, to settle you. He's willing to be that brother. Receive it. So when someone brings a difficult message to you and you know it's a biblical message, then look at the person as a faithful brother. Don't look at the person as, well, uh, um, an enemy, like as if the person is an enemy. The person is trying to deliver you from the enemy called the devil, your adversary. Look at the person as your ally, helping you, being, to love you enough when no one is willing to tell you that, but the person will tell you that. Now, I want to emphasize again, I'm not encouraging us to go around and look at problems in people's life and be the kepo, right? The, the kepo means nothing to you. Um, the busybody, right? Um, this is not what it is. Paul, Paul, Peter also warned about busybodies in verse 15, or as busybody in other men's matters. Uh, chapter 4, verse 15. Now, so there's a faithful brethren, all right? So I'm, before I move on, men, please be stirred up, grow up, be mature, settle your Christian walk, be spiritual, be serious, be dependable, spiritually, men and women alike. And pray that you'll be one of those that God will save, my faithful servant, when you meet him. Whatever age you may be. Well, question number two. Now, Recall some of the things Apostle Peter has written to them in this epistle. Why do I ask you that? Because in verse 12, we've studied the first part, by Sylvanus, a faithful brother unto you. Now, then he says, now I have written briefly. Well, let me explain this phrase as I suppose. By Sylvanus, a faithful brother unto you as I suppose. Now, Peter is not saying, um, I hope he is, I suppose. The Greek word is the word that is used for accounting, all right? For, for reckoning, for confirming. Accounting is very exact, right? It means you calculate, you know exactly, and you, you tell it, and it's correct. So he's not saying suppose in a, in a sense that we commonly know it. I hope, I hope so. I think so. Now, Peter knew the kind of faithful Christian Sylvanus is. Peter knew very well. So did Paul. When he said, he, I suppose... He is saying, now I'm very clear that he is and I hope that you will take him as I tell you. He is faithful as well, all right? So that is what it means. Just as I know he is and I suppose you will also take him to be so as his life has proven to be. Now then he says, I have written briefly. I have written briefly, exhorting and testifying. I have written briefly. I say, wow, briefly, we start this I don't know for how long. Maybe I should have checked. How many months have, been have we been studying this? Um, every 
break every two weeks. It's been a long time. Paul, Peter says, well, briefly, briefly. Now he's ending this letter and he says, I've written to you briefly. I don't want us to leave the epistle of First Peter and then have no recollection of what we've learned. And Peter says, it's just briefly, right? I'm just saying many things briefly. And if it's briefly and we cannot remember, then it is very sad, all right? Then we lost everything. Now, so I open book, all right? Open book test. So you can flip through, your, through First Peter. Now, what are some of the things that, you, that we know, Paul, that we've learned briefly from this epistle? Especially things that meant, um, that, that stood out for you, all right? Maybe I just go around. Um, um, Alex. About what? Subjection. Okay, you pick the biggest area. All right, where is that found? Subjection. Say again. Very good. Now, the chapter 2 from verse, after he mentioned about we are strangers and pilgrims in verse 11, verse 13 onwards into chapter 3 as well, into chapter 4 as well, majority of the epistle was about submission, subjection, submission. You will see the word repeated, verse 13, submit. All right? Um, and then verse 18, subject. All right? And then we have many examples in there. And then, now, now what areas? Maybe I should ask, what is this idea of submission first? Um, forget people's name, Howard. What is submission? Subjection. Say again. Obey whatever God says no matter whatever is the outcome to me, all right? Whatever is the outcome to me, I will just submit to it. Because if we talk about submission, well, there are no caveats. Or if it turns out good for me, if it is not inconvenient, if it doesn't make me feel uncomfortable, I will submit. It's not like that, all right? So, very good. That's the first one. Now, remember this submission has to do with that are authorities. Submission to an authority. Whether, and he gave a whole long list of authorities, all right? Submission to authority and to understand that this submission is for your good. It's obedience, right? Without resistance, so some of these ideas, I hope you remember. So yes, that's one of the main theme about, about, about his epistle. All right? So look at verse chapter 2. Now, in verse 13 and 14, we have submission to government authorities. All right? Then, as long as it's according to, it is not against the word of God, we are to submit. Even you don't like it, drive at 50. Yes, drive at 50. All right? Pay these taxes. Yes, pay these taxes. You will, the law is like that. Yes, the law is like that. Christians are not supposed to be rebellious. Then we have, well, in verse 18, subjection to your bosses. Then we have chapter 3, wives, be subjection. Be in subjection, verse 1, to your own husband. Submission in the home. 
for the wives. All right, then there is um, for the husbands. All right, verse 7, likewise, husband, dwell with them according to knowledge. There is submission to what God asks you to about how you treat your wife. You are, while your wife submit to you, you must submit to God with respect to how you are supposed to lead your wife according to knowledge, honor, and so on. All right, then there is, well, submission uh, to God in many, many areas of our lives. And Christ was the ultimate example of submission. Now, these are themes that we cannot leave First Peter forgetting. And then in chapter 4, there is the, ultimately there is the submission to the fact that we cannot return to our old ways. We cannot return to our old ways. When God tells us that it is that we should no longer live this time on the flesh of our flesh to the lust of men, in chapter 4, verse 2, that is God's command to us. We must submit to that. There must be a change in your life. Even when people think it's strange. Now, this is going to be a very difficult area because your relatives may think it is strange for you not to behave in a certain way. They will not understand your Christian faith, your Christian beliefs, your Christian walk, your Christian principles. Because they may think, well, we have always done this in the home this way. Why is it changed now? Your friends, your workplace will be the same. Now, they will pressure you. Then you will you say, either I submit to that pressure or I submit to what God tells me. All right, then ultimately in chapter 4 and 5, there's a submission to God's, what God allows in our lives. Whatever it is, health problems, financial problems, but God says, don't let it be because of your sin, all right? You're suffering for your sin. You still must submit, but when there's nothing that you have done wrong, but God allows, submission to God ultimately. He is the one in dominion. All right, good, all right? So submission is one very big theme. The most difficult thing in the Christian life is submission because of pride. Pride. I won't submit to my husband. I won't submit to the church. I won't submit to... Someone who tells me that I'm wrong. I won't submit to God's word, ultimately. All right? Now, very quickly, all right, we are quite behind time. Now, what else? There is in chapter 1, well, the very key thing, all right, which is, be holy, for I am holy, in chapter 1. Chapter 1. Holiness is one key theme that Peter focused on. And then in chapter 1, verse 22, there is, well, loving one another. Right? Our fellowship, our relationship with each other. There's another theme that Paul, uh, that Peter say I wrote briefly about. And then there is the reminder of life is very short on earth. In chapter 1, verse 24, the reminder that life is very short on earth changes our perspective. Right? Then there is a reminder of what about the word of God? Chapter 2. As newborn babes, desire the sincere milk of the word that you may grow thereby. So that is the desire for God's word. Do you have that in your life? Peter said, I wrote briefly to you about it. But let us remind ourselves about that. Is God's word a very major part of our life? You know what is it, this desire? We learn that, right? When the baby, when the baby you feed it a bit later, it'll cry and scream, right? I want it now. I must have it. I'm very hungry. I must have it. Just that we just that it comes out in a different sound. <laughs> All right? screaming. They just must have it. 
Is your life, my life like that? For one day where you don't read the Word of God, you don't have a study of the Word of God, you just feel very uncomfortable, you are just very unsettled, you just must have the Word of God. Or is it, wow, good, today I don't have to do my quiet time. Is it like that? Now, what else? So, yes, the rest about submission and so on. All right, so very briefly. So, remember some of these key areas that Peter briefly dealt with, and I hope that the reminder makes us, well, be faithful Christians. Now, the next one. Question number three. Now, what does exhorting mean? What does exhorting mean? Because here, he says, look at verse 12. Now, he says, now, I have written briefly, exhorting and testifying that this is a true grace. Now, first, he said, I wrote to exhort you. I wrote to exhort you. Now, Christian, we read this word all the time in the Bible, exhort, exhort, exhort. And then sometimes people say, oh, pastor, will you be giving an exhortation um, before the, uh, this activity or that activity? Will there be an exhortation? All right? So sometimes I'm, I'm very tempted to ask, uh, I am, but... Do you know what is exhortation? Because we use the word all the time. What is exhortation? Thomas, what is exhortation? You read that in the Bible all the time, right? What are some ideas about exhortation? Because Peter said, I'm writing to exhort you, you know. God's word constantly say, this is God's exhortation. They say, okay, what, what is it? How am I supposed to respond? If I don't know what is exhortation, then I don't know how to respond. All right. Sorry. Say again. Encourage. All right. Very good. How do you get that word encourage? Don't know. Every time we exhort, it's an encouragement. All right. Now, remember we, we, we learn, blessed are they, and then they say, for they shall be, start with C. Comforted. Very good. They shall be comforted. Remember I told you that word is the same word. Ex exhort. Comforted. Comforted. It's para kaleo. Para means come beside you. Come beside you. Para. Kaleo means speak. Alright? Coming beside you and speak. Okay, very good. So that is comfort. Very good. Comfort. Alright, so first there's comfort. So the word of God is to comfort us. That is comfort. In other words, Christian, you must turn to the Word of God for comfort. When you are troubled, when you're confused, when you're upset, when you're the world called depressed, the Christian must know that the Word of God, the written Word of God, is to exhort us, to comfort us. Now, of course, there are genuine, physical, medical depression. There are, which requires medical intervention, medication, but let us not, like this world has painted now, every single emotion of sadness or um, um, feeling of difficulty or, or feeling down as depression. Everything is depression today. Everything is about our mental health being affected today. There are genuine medical cases, as I mentioned. Now, but the Christian has come to a stage where everything, they just turn. They turn to the world. They turn to psychologists. They turn to medication even if they don't need it. They don't learn to understand that the Word of God, the, what Peter wrote, what the Apostle wrote, what God used them to write are exhortations. They are meant to comfort us. Only the Word of God 
can comfort us. Only the Word of God can help us to think rightly and therefore we will all of a sudden all of a sudden see, actually all these things really don't matter. Why am I so depressed about it? When I look at the whole perspective of the glory of God, the dominion of God, the rule of God, when I look at eternity forever and ever, amen, I see things very differently, right? Comfort. So, yes, you must understand the word means comfort. Who do you run to for comfort? I run to my husband, I run to my wife, I run to my parents, I run to my children, I run to my friends, my colleague. The word of God gives us good comfort, right? Christian, learn to turn to that. Now, what else? Encouragement. Maybe I stay with you, Thomas. What do you understand by encouragement? All right? Being a Christian is not easy, so the Word of God encourages me, helps me to continue. Okay, good. Now, is there another aspect of encouragement? Maybe I try um, um, Jonathan, Jonathan, the one Jonathan at the back. So one, one form of encouragement means to, well, you are feeling troubled, you are feeling sad, so it encourages you. Can you think of another meaning of the word encouragement? No. When you don't want to do something, when you are tempted to sin, when you are tempted not to obey God, and then, or you are tempted to give in to something, all right? You make a decision for your family, for your children, and then you're tempted to go back on it because oh, it's just too difficult. Something that is biblical that you should do. Then a Christian comes to encourage you. What do you think he means? I'm here to encourage you. Encourage you to, to continue to do what is right, correct? To stir you, to push you, to nudge you. You don't want to move in that direction. So it's encouraging you to move in that direction. Sometimes, like you're in the gymnasium, all right? Those of you who go to have a trainer you, or you watch people. When, you, when a person cannot lift, then, the, then the, the instructor encourages them. You can make it. You can make it, all right? It's to go through it, all right? So that's another encouragement. So please don't always take encouragement as it must make me feel better. Sometimes it is actually to make you feel worse so that you will do better, all right? Understand that. Because sometimes I always hear people pray. Well, pray that there'll be more encouraging messages. I hope they understand in the Bible what it means exhort. Exhort literally means encourage. But this exhort has the words, has the words, the Greek words that mean to admonish. Means actually to speak strongly to, admonish. It's the meaning to... Um, to instruct, to teach, all right? To strengthen. So it's not just console. Console means make you feel comfortable. It is also to, well, constrain, to push you, to pull you, all right? When you don't want to, do, to move in a certain direction, to encourage you to move in that direction. Now, when you leave a message and you leave a message, feeling, well, I feel like I've just been scolded, but I just feel that, yeah, that is true in my life. Have you been encouraged? Yes. You have, have you been exhorted? Yes. You have been exhorted. So, understand the both sides of this word exhort in scriptures. On one side, it is, it is consoling, 
on the other side is pleading you to go in the direction that you should go into and if you are not then to admonish you to instruct you even to scold all right so that is this word exhort so when you read the bible the bible says when peter says i write to exhort you he's saying i write to do all this i write to do all this now then again i should ask what is the lesson to know that is both to console you as well as to constrain you as well as to um to instruct and to push and to admonish you maybe ask let me see who um nathan nathan all right so you know that now this word means all this scripture means all this and someone writes to you it means all this all right what is your response supposed to be the big theme that peter has been writing about submit right submit submission submission to exhortation so when peter now ends his epistle say i wrote to exhort you now please submit to the word of god please submit to the things that i've written or i've i've dictated silvanus has scribed and carry it to you submit to it these are exhortations exhortations now do not come to church do not be a christian to come to church just to gain knowledge just to fulfill your duty of coming to church don't read the bible every time you study the bible you read the bible every time you take fbc courses take it with this word in mind these are written exhortations of the living god it is both to comfort me console me as well as to stir me rebuke me and push me to do that which is right when i don't feel like doing it when i even cannot accept i mean i give you an example wives be in subjection to your own husbands if any obey not the word even to husbands that do not who are not christians as long as what they tell you to do is not sinful against the word of god the word of god says even unbelievers so the wives then can find it very difficult to accept this is impossible this you should not teach me such things peter you should not write these things if any obey not the word i thought we are only to obey christian husbands you see it's very difficult many other areas like submission to a difficult boss right and so on it's very difficult now he wrote many things to the christian in chapter 4 the things that you've been used to your culture your philosophies you've been used to now the word of god when it says no you must live differently you must submit because that is the written exhortation all right so you know the words that's good but why do you come for bible studies why do you come for fellowships why do you take notes at the end of the day you say lord i intend to obey we love to be comforted we love to be consoled but few love the other part of the word exhortation which is god coming alongside you and speaking to you about the very thing that he says if you change in this you are going to be strengthened you are going to be established you are going to be settled 
at a different plane in your Christian walk. God is coming beside to exhort. We don't like that part, right? So we must understand when Peter said, I, I, write and I want to know, I exhort you in this letter. Now, verse 4, right? A chapter, uh, question 4. Now, this is one of the key crux, moving to the key crux of, the, of, the, of this verse. Now, what does Peter call what he has written to the churches? What does Peter call what he has written to the churches? Just look at the Bible and you know, right? Kelvin, what does Peter call what he has written? Verse, verse 12. Say again? No. How can you miss it? It's very clear. Um, Han. Very good. Look at verse 12. That this is the true grace of God. He says, now, exhorting and testifying that this is the true grace of God. What he has written briefly is the true grace of God. He say, in fact, he said, exhorting and testifying. Testifying is, he say, is literally say, I swear, all right? I swear, I testify, I witness that this is the true grace of God. What I've written is the true grace of God. So what does Peter call what he has written to the churches? The true grace of God. <laughs> what does it mean? Now, that is why I say, please don't read endings and just, okay, ending, good, my, my private, my quiet time. Oh, ending already, yay, I can move to another book. There are many things in there that God uses, words that we often miss. He calls it the true grace of God. Now, what does it mean? What is true? It means genuine, genuine. So what Peter is saying, this, what I've written briefly, carried to you, is the genuine Word of God. This is genuinely the Word of God. I'm testifying that. Because he does not say that is the true grace of, of Peter or the true grace of Paul. Paul told me to write this. But it's the true grace of God. The genuine writings of God. That's the first thing we must remember. Now, what is grace? What is grace? Now, grace as we understand, always is basically, we, well, verse 10, but the God of all grace, right? Now he brings that word into the, the true. The God of all grace, well, then I'll let me talk about his grace. This grace is, well, talking about God's enabling, God's um, favor towards us, right? God's grace is God's grace, God's favor to us. God's grace Paul says, by his, um, his grace is, is sufficient for me. It also refers to enabling. All right? So it is genuinely the word of God that comforts, that constrains you to do what is right. So it's a word exhort, exactly as what grace means, both to comfort you as well as to constrain you to do right when you don't feel like doing right. Okay? So, True grace. Now, Christian, then what about of God? Now, Peter has to emphasize to them this is not, these things that I've written tell you to submit, tell you to um, be holy, tell you to, that life is short, tell you that um, um, you must love the word of God. These are not my ideas. Please turn to chapter 2, right? Chapter 2 of 2 Peter. 2 Peter. He emphasized this again. 
Second Peter, right, verse 20, chapter 1, verse 20. Knowing this first, that no prophecy of Scripture is of any private interpretation. For the prophecy came not in old time by the will of man, but holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. All right? So Peter is saying, please remember, the Word of God is, is God's Word, God's very own words. We are men. We are moved by Him, then scribed. That's all. So here in chapter 1, he was saying that as well. Right? This is of God. What I've written briefly is from God. That genuinely God's Word. Now, true, what are we to learn? I find that it's very interesting that Peter wants to refer to God's Word as, as the true grace of God. What are we to learn? Well, true means it enlightens us because it is truth. Don't look to the world for enlightenment. Don't look to the world for wisdom. They that are going through all this trouble, how should they think? Christian, when you live your Christian life in this world, you'll be constantly influenced by the world. How should you think? Only God's word is true. I will only trust God's word. Well, what about grace? Well, that is enabling me to live out what he tells me to do. What about of God? That is a great encouragement to me. That if God says that, I can trust it fully. I can live by it. And I know that he will always keep his promises. You see, true grace of God makes us, must make us respond in that way. I only trust this and I can trust this. How wonderful. Because it's of God, from God. Right? And only God can help, right? They are in terrible situation. When they read this word, and I believe the apostle were given this word, not just, well, this is the word of God. Very different from chapter 2. To remind the Christian, when God says, I enable, I, I allow this persecution in your life, this is true. And this, and I will give you the grace. He will do that. When God tells you, Christian, live this way. Remember these words. The true grace of God. I will. Because he will enable me. And it's definitely always true and correct to live this way. Now, question number five. Now, why must he exhort and testify that his writings are the true grace of God? Why do you think Peter, in his finishing, must say, now, I need to exhort, I even need to swear to you that this is the word of God, truly the word of God. Now, why do you think Peter needs to say that? Now, remember this. Peter, to them, they know his background. He was a fisherman. He was a fisherman. You are under severe persecution. Then you hear a letter arrives in church from Peter and is going to read to all the different churches. And then you just lost your family. You just lost your property because you're a Christian. And then you sit there hoping to hear something that will really help you. And then you think, wait, hang on. Peter is a, is a, was a fisherman. Should we listen to what he says? How about when you sit there hoping to hear something that you can trust to live by? 
hoping to, and when you, reach, when you hear something, you know, hang on, that was not what I was intending to do. That was not what I intending to do at my workplace, at my home, uh, for my family. That was not what I was thinking about. Then suddenly I hear from the Word of God, well, in the home, this is how you're supposed to live. Husbands, wives, children. At the workplace, this is what you're supposed to be. Then all of a sudden, you wonder, why should I listen to a fisherman? Right? So Peter needed to remind them, testify to them. Now Paul himself, now Paul was very well educated religiously. They knew about him. Now, even Paul wrote in 1 Thessalonians 2.13, I just read to you, For this cause also thank we God without ceasing, because when ye receive the word of God, ye receive, when ye receive the word of God which ye heard of us, ye receive not as the word of man, but as in truth the word of God which effectually worketh also in you that believe. Even Paul himself have to tell him, this is indeed the word of God, and I'm so glad you receive it as the word of God. Now, Christian, when you receive an instruction from the Word of God. Are you going to say, this is pastor's word? This is daddy and mommy's word. This is, well, whoever, my brother who is, my brother is saying this. No, but if it is the Word of God, you must, you must not just say, this is so and so telling me. That is exactly what Peter was trying to tell them. I wrote to exhort you and the things that I wrote is very contrary to how you are thinking, how you would prefer to live. But I must remind you, this is the true grace of God. He don't want to use the word. He must remind them this is true. This is the way to live. This is what God says. And this is grace. Don't refrain from it. He will help you. You may feel that you cannot overcome this sin. You can. If you obey him, you follow him. You can. Alright? So, a very unique choice of, of words. True grace of God to remind them. Question number six. Alright? We need to finish soon. Question number six. Now, this is one of the key... Th- oh, what about this? Now, I ask you, how would you respond in question number five? How would you respond if someone challenges you? This is a circular argument. You know what's a circular argument? The word of God says that this is the word of God. <laughs> because Peter is saying, now this is given by God and I'm writing what God says. And what God says is true. Because God says it is true. <laughs> right? So this is a circular argument. Why do you say this is true? Because I say it's true. So it comes back to me. There's no proof. Now how would you respond when, the Christ- when people say, well, Christian, you know, your faith, how do you know the Bible is true? Because the Bible says it is true. How do you know that the Bible is true? Because God who gave us the Bible say it is true. John. John. Right? John, see me. How will you respond if your friends ask you, but John, come on, this is a circular argument. Why do you believe in the Bible? They say, because the Bible say it is true. <laughs> say, wow, then this is a circular argument. You're foolish to believe in the Bible. How would you respond? You know, belief in Evolution. How would you respond? Just believe. At the end of the day, it's about faith. Just believe. At the end of the day, it's faith. It's faith. 
You must understand that. That's why it's faith to faith, right? Now, what about your friend, John? Do you think they're also having a circular argument? How do you know the Bible is not true, Thomas? Because Thomas said it is not true. <laughs> then how do you know Thomas is right? How do you know that evolution is true? Because evolution is not based on facts. It's also based on what scientists think it is. You believe in evolution by faith. You also believe in evolution by faith. Both are exercising faith in a circular argument. You say there is no God. How do you know there is no God? Because people say there is no God. How, what makes people right? It's a circular argument. The Christian at the end of the day must know it is faith. Right? So when you read the Bible, you must read it with faith. Receive it with faith. Accept it by faith. Submit to it by faith. Question number six is the main question that I want to ask. Now, what will result if I did not treat the Bible as the true grace of God? Peter had to assure them they are under persecution. Now, what if they do not take the Bible as the true grace of God? What do you think will happen? Vincent. Whole night I've been trying to remember your name. Finally remember your name. Vincent. You won't be able to obey the grace of God. Why? Obtain the grace of God. You won't obtain the grace of God. Why? Very good. All right. Now, notice the word of God is called the true grace of God. Now, if you don't receive the word of God as that, because you don't receive it as true, God says, obey, live this way. This is the family model. This is the singlehood model. This is the life of a Christian at work. You don't want to obey. You don't think that what God says is true. You rely on how you've always understood family life, work life, your personal life as what you've always understood it to be. Because you don't think it is true, then you won't submit to it. You won't rely on it. You won't obey it. And when you don't, you won't receive the grace of God. Understand that. So Peter would use this word carefully, not just the word, then you're going to miss a lot of things. The true grace of God. Now, you are under persecution. You are tempted not to obey certain things. But unless you believe that what I've written to you, the word of God is true, that no matter how you see with your eyes, it does not make sense for me to obey God in this. I will suffer greatly. My, my family would mock me. My friends would um, um, leave me. My child will, will lose out. As long as you don't believe what God says is true and that His grace can be relied on. No, I should do it this way then you won't receive the grace of God. You won't receive His help. You will get into greater and greater troubles. Right? That's one. Now, the second one is this. Now, unless you believe utterly in your heart, wholly, fully, totally, that God's word about anything, the family, your choices about your job, everything, the principles are always true, then why would you continue to suffer? 
unless you believe it is true, why would they continue to obey? The only reason why they are persecuted is because they are obeying what they believe about Christ Jesus. Now, I want you to notice, look at verse 10. It's Christ Jesus, all right? Now, look at um, verse 14. It's Christ Jesus. It's constantly Christ Jesus. It's the constant reminder to them this Christ that you've always looked forward to, you must remember he is Jesus, that Jesus that was crucified. He is Christ. Means what he said is true. Now, unless you believe that, why would you follow this Jesus if you don't think he's the Christ? Why would you let your properties be taken away? Why would you let your limb be cut off? Why would you willingly let your body be burned and used as live street lamps by the Romans? This is all in history. Why would you do that unless you know and you embrace and you utterly believe that it is true? That is why I will obey it even if it means it costs me my life. So if you don't take God's word as the true truth, you won't persevere. Peter needed them to persevere. When Satan comes and tempts them in verse, um, in verse 8, they will just give in. They won't resist. Now, Christian, you will come a time. I'm going to say, and I hope you understand this. These Christians, they live, maybe I describe it this way. They live in a circle. They know certain truths. Peter will tell them about more truths. The circle becomes smaller. Now, I want you to look at why I say this. Look at verse, verse, verse 12. Huh? The true gift, wherein ye stand. Wherein ye stand. They are standing in a circle, standing on God's word. And this circle will get smaller and smaller and smaller. It will be the same as us. The more you receive God's commandment, the more you realize the things that you used to do, used to think, now, there are no longer boundaries you should cross. Then even the very commandment that you understood, like they understood, I, wives must submit to their own husband. Then suddenly they read, even to those that do not believe, the circle got smaller. They admire their friends. You know, you have a Christian husband. Obeying him means something. I, my husband is not a believer. Then suddenly they hear, even if it is an unbeliever, as long as it is not sinful, circle got smaller. The Christians who thought, well, it's all right for me to, um, I, thought, I always thought it was all right for me to, to drink, but not get drunk. Then suddenly I realized from chapter 4, it is not just about drunkenness. It's about total abstinence. The circle just got smaller. You stand on God's word and if you know and if you want to say, well, Lord, I will embrace everything as true, you will find that circle shrinking very quickly. But will you stand? The Christian, Peter needed to them to understand, I've written many things to you that I know that I know when you receive it, you will question. A fisherman wrote them, do I really need to obey? Is it God that is telling me? Should I really go through the extent of taking a stand for Christ, my faith? What if it is not true? You see, if you don't take the word of God as the true grace of God, you will give up. I shared with you some some young person is going through persecution. 
All right. I shared with you on prayer meeting night. I ask you to pray for these two teens. They've reached a stage where they're not allowed to come to church. All right. So far, it seems to be the next two weeks. But I urge you to pray for these two. And this phrase came, this verse came to my mind. Unless these two see what they have learned from the Bible as God's word, unless they see it as true, unless they see it as for that for which they are standing and now being persecuted by Christian parents, is true, is God's truth. It's not BPCWA teaching. It's not Pastor Joseph's teaching. But we read it from the Bible. Unless they see as true, they will give up. Maybe there is no need to go through all this. After all, is it true? Right? So Christian, that circle will shrink. You will see in your own circle, how would you respond when that happens? Unless you see as true. All right, Christian, I hope that you remember that. They were suffering for only one reason, obeying God's word. Don't see it as true, then they'll say, what's the point? Maybe there's no need. Now we close by, I'll quickly give you the answer, question number seven. What does stand refer to? It means to be firm, to be established, to be unmovable, to keep your place. That is stand. All right, so you stand firmly, squarely on the word of God. You don't move out of it. And no matter what is the roaring lion screaming and shouting at you, remember the leash he is on. He can't go beyond that leash to harm you. You stand in that circle. The moment you're afraid of him and you run out of that circle, the moment you don't like what you hear and you want to move out of that circle, you'll be devoured. You will fall. Alright, so now this word stand, I want you to understand a few things about this word stand. Now, it's interesting because this word stand, it also has the picture of escape. When you stand firmly on the truth of God and you obey it, you will have to change your life, alright? Change things, change way of thinking, change decisions and you stand in there. Now, this word stand actually means you will escape safety because you stay firm. You escape safety. Uh, no, you escape um, trouble and you will be safe. You'll be safe. Now, the other day I was walking and then a dog came up to me. I kept barking and barking and barking. Um, then I just kept standing there, right? That was the safest thing to do in my mind at that time and it did not move. I tend to stand and be as big as possible. The dog didn't come near, right? I think if I ran, the dog would chase me, all right? And I can't outrun a dog. But this stand is, is, is actually safety, remain unharmed. Interesting word. All right, now, the, another, the last thing about this word, now it has to do with a steadfastness of mind without hesitation. Steadfastness of mind without hesitation. Very interesting words that, that Peter uses. All right, wherein ye stand. Meaning to say, you do not hesitate when you hear what I write to you. Don't start to reason. 
You know, these people, they will pressure me. They will say, well, you used to live like that. You used to run your family like that. You used to be like that. Why do you want to change? He say, now, you make sure you stand. Do not even hesitate for a moment when you read what I have written to you because it's the true grace, grace of God. You simply don't waver and be steadfast and obey. That's all. So Peter, after writing about the roaring lion, he used this word. You stand on the word of God and you will be saved. But the moment you hesitate, the moment you, you wonder, and then you make, well, you take your own step instead, well, you will fall. Last question number eight. What are the ways, well, what are the things that we can stand on? Well, the ways of the thinking of the world, the philosophies of the world. This is how you bring up children. Let them do what they want. Let them explore their emotions. You know, today children, when they scream and they shout and they don't, don't control them, they say it's called let them explore their emotions. This is letting them be as crazy as they want to be without restraint. This is not God's way. Philosophies of the family model, philosophies and so on, right? Philosophies of the world, the world's thinking. Culture. Before we were saved. Now, I want you to notice that Paul, that Peter keeps saying that they will think it's strange that you run not with them. And he, talk, he kept talking about your time, in time past, in time past, in time past. What is he talking about? What you were used to. Your culture, your way of thinking, your Chinese culture, your Indian culture, your whatever culture, all right? This is how we do things. This is how we think. Now, culture is not evil as long as they don't contradict the word of God. When you bring culture to interpret God's word and live according to, to the culture of the world and you say that is God's word, you're in danger. Don't do that, all right? So culture is not evil. The Jews have their culture very strong. Certain things possible, you continue in those culture. But anything that would contradict the word of God and when they begin to use culture to interpret scriptures, he rebuked them, okay? Now, Question number nine, well, what will happen if we fail to stand in the true grace as strangers and pilgrims? Well, refer to verse 10. Refer to 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 10. Now, the word of God, the God of all grace, who is the author of the true grace, intend to make us establish, strengthen, and settle, make us perfect, now, if we fail to stand firmly on the true grace of God, we won't be perfect, means mature. We won't be stable in our Christian walk. We won't be strong. We will waver. We won't be settled. Always a yo-yo Christian life. There are many Christians who are like that. Now, Christian, we are strangers and pilgrims on earth. We have to look at God's word as the truth. If not, you will say, why suffer? Why go through all this? Why be misunderstood? Why suffer losses? Why, why, why? Let us turn to God in prayer.